letters. They're all consonants, actually. But along with the vowel points, you put them together, and you learn that you can write any word, any sentence, any paragraph, indeed, all of the stories of the Old Testament from those 22 letters. Our English language, of course, has 26 letters, and all of our writing is possible because we learn those 26 letters. I imagine if you didn't know English, you could master the English alphabet in about 15 minutes or so, and everything is built from that. The ABCs of a language are not difficult to learn. Once you learn them, they can express the most complicated thoughts in any language. This morning, we're going to learn another language, a theological language, the language of sin, and we're going to do it just by learning the first three letters of that language, the A, B, and C of the language of sin. And I'm teaching this to you today because by learning the ABCs of this language, you'll be able to really extrapolate more deeply and more profoundly beyond just these lessons and learn so much more about the dimensions of sin, the awfulness of sin, the damage that sin can do, and then hopefully to some degree how to deal with sin in your own life. So if you would join me this morning by turning to the letter of 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John towards the back of your New Testaments, and to the beginning of chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. As you're turning there, I'll just say a couple of words about this letter. This is a letter that the Apostle John wrote toward the end of the first century. He wrote it to combat what's been called incipient Gnosticism, Gnosticism which became full-blown in the second century, began to have its effect in the church at the latter part of the first century. It had already infiltrated the church to some degree. Their beliefs were that Jesus the Christ could not have actually come in real human flesh. They denied that the eternal God could become flesh, and so they believed all flesh was evil. So in denying that, they would deny all the wonderful works that Christ did, His virgin birth, His death upon the cross, obviously His bodily resurrection. And all of this was leading many astray. It was heresy, and John wrote this letter largely to combat that heresy. The letter is drenched with the need to have confidence in God's truth. So as these teachers were trying to deceive the Christians, whom John calls little children, and pull them away from what was true Christianity, Jesus had come in the flesh, as they were trying to do that, He was trying to breathe confidence into them about the historical nature of the Christian faith and that it was true and that it was handed down from eyewitnesses, the apostles, and they needed to have confidence in their faith. Along with that, they needed to learn what the signs were of somebody who was actually truly following God, and that was obedience to Christ's command, and the highest command of His was to love one another. And so obedience to God's commandments was the way to show someone actually had trusted in Christ, believed in Christ, and had the gift of eternal life. Now, I'm just going to cover verses 1 and 2 of 1 John 2, but I want to begin reading back at verse 5 of chapter 1 to get a little bit of the context if you look back to verse 5. John writes, this is the message we have heard from Him, God, and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. Now to chapter 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 
Well, these words are meant to impress on our hearts very well-known truths about sin, yet they are profound. They're about your sin and my sin. They're meant to motivate us to be able to fight sin and to understand what's going on in our lives when sin is there. In other words, they are the ABCs of the sin language, and by learning the ABCs or by reviewing the ABCs, it's my prayer, you can use it to solve a whole array of issues in your own life, build upon it, and help to prevent sin in your life as well. We're going to start with the letter A. A in the sin language stands for avoid sin, avoid sin. You say, tell me something I didn't know, Pastor. (laughs) All right? Avoiding sin is always God's will. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. John's writings are plain, they're clear, they're direct. When I was a new believer, I was attracted to John's writings because I thought I could at least understand them but then you find out they're so profound. Simple words, simple ABCs, very profound truth. What could be plainer here? It is never God's desire that you as a Christian sin. John is saying, look, my purpose in writing this portion of the letter to you, my little children, is that you will not sin. Imagine a parent looking at a child and saying, I don't want you to disobey me. That's what God is saying through John. I don't want you to sin. Sin is not an acceptable action for a believer. Sin is never okay with God. God never winks at your sin. I know He never winks at my sin. God never blesses sinful choices. Sin is never a wise choice. So, A, say it with me, avoid sin. Very good, class. I want us to hear what we already know, but I want us to hear it clearly and maybe a little deeper. Look back to chapter 1, verse 5, where we started reading. The one whom John describes as being light himself and having no darkness, no darkness, that's an emphatic statement at all in him, he then never takes pleasure in the slightest bit of darkness found in any of his children. If God is pleased with you, it is not because he sees any darkness in you. Any of the darkness He sees in you, He is not pleased with. God's children are told that we must be walking in the light as He is what? In the light. Darkness is not found in light, so dark deeds are out of place in those who are children of light. All sin and every kind of sin, the Bible describes, and every degree of sin, and there are degrees of sin, is to be avoided. Of course, only what the Bible calls sin is a sin. Sometimes you'll find different churches and different religious groups, and they'll say something is a sin. If God doesn't call it a sin, it's not a sin. Your conscience and my conscience does not need to be bound by that. But when God, in His Word, says something is a sin, that is something He has told us is a sin so that we will not practice it. Not just the lifestyle of sin, please note, the committing of any sin is to be avoided. John was very careful in his use of Greek verb tenses throughout this letter, and in verse 1, the verb sin there is not in the present tense. He'll use it in the present tense in chapter 3, where he says, no one who is born of God sins, and what he means by that in using the present tense is, no one who's been born again and is now a Christian continues in a lifestyle of sin the same way they lived before they were born again. That's what he means by that when he uses the present tense sin. But here it's not the present tense, it's the aorist tense, which means he didn't even want a believer to commit one sin or a particular sin in any area. The verb that John uses for sin here in the aorist is the verb, and I'm sure many of you have heard it before, harmartano, right? We get harmonology from that, the study of sin. It sheds light on what we actually even mean by sin. When he says don't sin, what does that word even mean? We use it so much in church, we're like sin, 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 what is that? That's to do something wrong. Actually, the word means to miss the mark. And if you think about that, that helps because there's a mark to hit. There's a direction in which God wants your thoughts. There's a direction in which God wants you to live. To sin is to miss that mark. It's not to achieve anything at all. 
when you shoot an arrow and you, you miss the target, I know nowadays because people don't like competition anymore, people may clap and say, good job, good job, you missed the target. But if you're serious about archery, you're not going to clap your hands. You're going to say, look, you need to hold still and you need to draw back and, and make sure you release smoothly and all of that. You want to hit the target, right? Gun practice, the same thing. You don't want to come back and say, honey, I shot at the deer 16 times, but I have nothing I brought back home. If you're a hunter, you want to hit the target. When we sin, we miss the target. The target is actually good. The target is something actually to aim for. God says, this is the right way to live. It's going to benefit you. You're going to be happy. You have to learn to trust me. But if you sin, it went into the ground or it flew way past. It didn't hit the target. So... You can even look forward to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 just for a minute to get the idea of what he means by sin here, not only from the word, but from the description of that. In 1 John 3, 4, he says, everyone who practices sin also practices, and there's another word that's used there, do you see it? Lawlessness. Now, you might not think of yourself as a criminal, but when you commit a sin, you are breaking a law in God's universe, and so before God, you're a criminal. You might be an outstanding citizen of the United States of America and of the state of Maryland, but with God, you're a criminal. That's how God looks upon you. You're a criminal. You violated his law. You're a transgressor of the law, and he does have a court, and you will have to face him that day in court, and, and, and he knows exactly how to indict you of that sin. He knows exactly how to press that sin against you, to bring out the evidence against you. And so sin is lawlessness, he said, lawlessness to Christ's commandments. Even in chapter 2, we know that he's talking about specific commandments of God that are broken because if you go back to chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says that the keeping of God's commandments is the indication of someone who knows God. They were facing a situation there at the end of the first century where people were saying, I have a personal relationship with God. I know God. Me and God, we're fine, but they weren't obeying the commandments of Christ. And John said, listen, if someone says they know God but they don't keep His commandments, they're liars. By the way, we could apply that today, right? Who is a true Christian? People that get up on television and say they have faith or those that obey the commandments. Only those that obey the commandments should be regarded as a true Christian. That's what the Bible says. John even provides an example of some of the commandments that he's talking about. Look forward again to chapter 3 and verse 23. Chapter 3, verse 23. He specifies it there. He talks about a commandment that gives us confidence before God if we keep it. And he says, this is his commandment, Christ's commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So there's like one commandment, have faith in my son, God said, and love one another. And he said that through Jesus. That's his command. So if you don't do those two things, if you don't believe in the name of his son, you're a transgressor of his law, you are sinning. Everybody that doesn't believe in the son of God is sinning just by not believing in Christ. And everyone who doesn't keep the commandment after believing in the Son, that is to love one another, is also sinning. So, don't sin. Don't break God's commandments. And then John writes this to show the compassion he has for his readers. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. Sometimes what we say in church is strong. Some people call it mean or harsh. They misunderstand. If you're strongly exhorting someone to avoid something, you're not being mean, you're not being unloving, you're being more loving than the people that accept the sin and say, hey, keep doing the sin, it's no problem, we accept you. They accept you, but they don't love you. Because if they loved you, they would steer you away from danger and disaster and destruction. But here he's saying, my little children, I'm writing this to you so you will not sin. It's the compassion of a father. He's an older man. It's towards the end of the first century. John's the last living apostle by this point in time. And so everybody in the church he calls my little children. They're all little children to him. They're ones that he's pastored. They're ones that he's shepherded. And he's saying, I'm writing to you this portion of the letter so you won't sin. And I'm doing it because I'm a fatherly figure in your life. And I don't want you to sin. Now, if you look back into chapter 1, you can see that he was exposing unbelievers there in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1. John was dealing with the false claims of some in the Christian circles that were saying things that were not true. They claimed to know God. They claimed to walk in the light, but they didn't have love. They didn't obey Christ's commandments. And he was saying, no, they're not even Christians. They say they have no sin. They're deceiving themselves because they do have sin. They keep saying, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And God says, no, you're not a good person. You're not a good person. So who are they deceiving? They're not deceiving God. God knows that they're sinners. Who are they deceiving? They're deceiving who? Themselves. Everybody that walks around out there and says, I'm a pretty good person, I really think I live a pretty good life, 
They're lying to themselves day and night. And people come along and say, I agree with you. You're a pretty good person. That's participating in the lie. That's not love. But John's loving. And so he's exposing the false believers there. They didn't keep Christ's commandments. And they denied a lot of other things that were true. We mentioned that they denied the virgin birth and the real death of Jesus on a cross and a bodily resurrection. So when he talks about them, he talks about these people, he calls them liars in chapter 1. If you go to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 22, he's also very forceful there. He says, who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. That's 1 John 2, 22. If you deny Christ, that he has come in the flesh, that Jesus, the human Jesus, is the eternal Christ, if you deny that connection, you're a liar. He's not talking about believers there. He's talking about unbelievers. But now his eyes have turned to encourage the true children of God. As you're hearing all these lies out there about things, I'm writing to you, children, please. I'm telling you, don't sin. Don't commit even one sin. Little children is one of John's favorite ways to address the Christians. Such as 1 John 3, 7, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. He doesn't want his children deceived. Do you want your children deceived? Do you ever work with children and wish that they would be deceived? How can you be loving and wish your children would be deceived? He doesn't want them deceived. Dr. Hebert, D. Edmund Hebert, in his series of articles on 1 John, which are amazing, from Dallas Theological Seminary's um, journal, Bibsack, he writes this, John heard this expression of tender affection from the lips of Jesus in John 13, 33, at the Last Supper. Jesus called his disciples little children, and now, in his old age, it was a favorite term with him. His fatherly heart went out to his spiritual children as he sought to aid them and warn them against sin and the false teachers. All right, let's take this very simple letter, letter A, avoid sin, and let's go a little bit deeper concerning it. Why does God not want us to sin? Well, the Bible presents basically two reasons why sin is to be avoided. Reason number one, sin never gives God glory. Sin never gives God glory. Since God is light, then sin is inconsistent with His character. Would you agree? Those who are joined in union with God should reflect the holy, loving, and truthful character of that God. 1 John 2, 6 says, the one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. See the connection? Christ walked this way. You say you're connected to him. You should be walking the way that Christ walked. 1 John 2, 29, if you know that Jesus is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of Jesus. Does it make sense? If you don't practice righteousness, you're not born of him because he's righteous. His character reflects on you. That's how you should be living. By the way, it's not just John. Peter says the same thing when he quotes the Old Testament and says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am what? Holy. That's my character. I'm holy, so you, my people, need to be holy. It's Christ's character. We follow Christ's character. Why should we avoid sin? Because every time we sin, every time we give in, every time we say yes to sin, Every time we act in the flesh, we dishonor God. That is not said enough in churches today. It's all about acceptance and all about a phony kind of love. God wants you to know you need to love Him first, and the first thing you know, need to know about loving God is keep His commandments. God is a God of obedience. It's not legalistic to say that. That's Satan getting in there and twisting things and saying, well, if you talk about obeying God's commandments, that's legalistic. No, that is love. It's love for God, and you also learn to love one another that way. We fail to reflect the holy character of our Heavenly Father when we sin. That's why it's wrong. Avoid it. There's a second reason, though. It's important. Sin is harmful. Sin is harmful to us. You see, just as... We have our children's best interest in mind when we give them various commands, maybe like 500 a day, whatever it is for you little kids at home, you know, don't run inside, you know, eat your vegetables, finish your homework, clean your room. They hear a lot of those commands like they're being punished. Every single one of those commands is for their own benefit. If they would do what they're being told, they would grow up wise like us. Except that we disobeyed our parents when we were young, and somehow God's grace and mercy was on us. But if they would obey, it would go well with them. It's not bad to eat vegetables. Ask me about that after the service. I'll let you know all about that. It's about all I'm eating these days is veggies. 
It's not wrong to be careful inside so that you don't skin your knee. It's not wrong, wrong to avoid playing near the street so that you're not hit by a car and go to the hospital, right? These are beneficial. Everyone knows if you listen to the commands of a loving father, you're going to be better off. God has our best in mind also when he warns us to avoid sin. He is caring. He's generous. He wants things to go well from us. He's not holding back the good life from us. He's not keeping joy from us. He's not trying to ruin our life. He's not trying to make you holy and you won't be happy. Holy goes with happy. They're on the both sides of the ledger. His warnings, his counsel has always been to strengthen us, to show us the way we should go, the path of success, to grant us joy. Do you remember what Satan told Eve in the garden? Does Did God say not to eat from this tree? He told you not to eat from this, huh? I'm paraphrasing. Well, he's keeping the good life from you. He knows if you eat like that, you're going to be like him, and you're going to be able to do this and that. It was a lie. None of that was true. God wasn't holding anything back from Eve. In fact, God gave Eve and Adam everything in the whole world except one stupid little tree. And there comes Satan as a serpent, right on down it, like, did God really say that? Come on over here, I'll show you the good life, as if he knows. Does Satan sound like a happy being to you? He's not. So sin destroys. What happened to them? Sin began all the misery on this planet. All the misery on this planet is because of the sin of one man, Adam. That's what Romans 5.12 says. We all die because of that one sin. We don't die because of our sins. We die because of his sin. And not even Eve's sin, Adam's sin, because he was the head of his home. We die because of that. And we have misery all the time. Other people make bad decisions or sinful decisions, and we suffer from that. We make bad decisions, and we suffer from our own decisions. And if all humans made good decisions, there are evil spirits up there making bad decisions, and they cause us suffering. But it all comes from sin. Sin is never good. Sin never builds anything up. Sin never brings joy and lasting value to the equation. He was told that they would die. The day you eat of it, you'll die. And they died. They died spiritually immediately. They lost their relationship with God. And then a process began where decay and death would happen. Not only does sin destroy, sin also enslaves. Sin enslaves. How many of you want to be a slave? I mean, who who wakes up in the morning and says, I'd like to be a slave? Sin would be very happy to enslave you. Sin enslaves everyone who sins. How do I know that? John 8, 34, Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. It's it's an amazing equation. There's a power in sin. There's a power in the part of your body that's not yet been born again, that's not been redeemed. That's your body. There's there's sin that's dwelling in your body. Your body's not evil, but there's evil dwelling in your body. And it's called the flesh, the sarks in Paul's writings. It's there. And it holds us captive to evil. That unredeemed flesh still enjoys sinning. Listen, everybody, when they're born into this world, is born with an addiction. They're addicted to sin. Now... It comes in different forms. Some people quickly find a propensity towards alcohol and drugs, and they find it very difficult to resist that. But it's because of their sin nature. Some people, and they testify that from the time they were youngest, they had attractions to the same sex rather than the opposite sex. And they say, this is what feels natural to me. And I don't doubt that because sin has enslaved their body, and that is something that feels natural to them, but that doesn't make it right. That just means it's, it's natural to the body. Some people very naturally want to punch other people in the nose all the time. And they get angry. And they've always felt that way. That doesn't mean that it's right. Just because something feels right doesn't mean it's right. Because they're born alienated from God. And their body has passions and addictions. And it has different faces and different people, but it's the same core. It's still sin. Proverbs 5.22 from the Old Testament. His own iniquities will capture the wicked. And he will be held with the cords of his own sin. People are struggling. They're bound by their own sin because sin trapped them. Sin grabbed them. Sin controls them. They're now mastered. They're enslaved by sin. And so they struggle. 
They struggle with all kinds of things. Discontentment from their earliest years. Fears from their earliest years. Cravings for various kinds of pleasures. Laziness. Whatever the sin may be. That doesn't make any of these things good or natural. God says, abandon those things. Do not practice those things. Of course, then each person reinforces that particular propensity towards a certain kind of sin by then developing bad habits and practicing the sin. So they begin to practice the sin because they like it, and then they practice it more and more, and then it becomes a habit of sin in their life. And so the enslavement is even deeper, and the cords are even stronger. Do you see? Children naturally want to be selfish and unkind. You don't have to teach them that. They don't go to school and learn in kindergarten. This is how you be unkind to your neighbor. They already have that down pat. They're very good at it. And don't say, not my kids, because either that means you haven't had kids yet or you're lying. It's all kids. It's all kids. They're all selfish. Ask any mother. Each time you complain, even though it seemed to come naturally to you, it becomes easier to keep complaining. That's a sin. Each time you indulge in the flesh, you trap your body in that bodily desire. It wants it more. The body's not redeemed yet. It wants it more. All fleshly appetites are enslaving, not just drugs and alcohol. So sin is enslaving and it's habitual. Sin is like a poison ivy itch. You ever had that? Oh, it's miserable. And you have it, you know, and you're scratching it. Now, oh, I feel so good, doesn't it? You're like, ah, oh, so much relief from the itching. <sighs> and you wait about, what, three seconds, five seconds, and it comes back three times as strong. Ah! And, you have to, and it's just a vicious cycle until you realize you're making it worse. Stop. Sometimes you have to tape the hand up, you know. Don't scratch anymore. You're going to have to just endure that for a while. You're going to have to overcome that. It'll eventually go away. You've got to resist. The whole reason why temptation works is sin initially feels great. It's the damage it does afterwards that you have to look at. So that's what lusting does. That's what coveting does. Oh, I have to have this for the house. Oh, I've got to get that. Oh, my wardrobe. Oh, my hair. I can always pick on hair because I don't have that issue, but I have other, <laughs> I have other issues. But it's always something, Right? And the next time you're faced with a decision to sin or not sin, I pray that these words come back to help guard your way. As you face your decision, remember, if you sin, it's probably going to be more than just one time that you sin because you've weakened yourself by your sin. Sin is like hot melted tar. You can't touch it, pull away, and not have it stick. There's going to be something that happened to you. That's why we're exhorted, even as Christians, Romans 6.13, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves, that is your bodies, to God as those who are now alive from the dead and present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Lord, use my hands, use my eyes, use my tongue, use my feet, use my strength, use my back. I want to I serve righteousness. Use me. Present it. We have to do that as believers too. So that's A, avoid sin. B, even with all of that said, B is for believers do sin. Believers still sin. B is believers still sin. It is a fact that we sin. We don't even need this verse to show us that, do we? We know we sin. It's obvious from two facts in the immediate context. First, if you look back to chapter 1, verse 9, we're told to confess our sins. Why would we be told to confess our sins as a continuous practice there if we didn't sin? We wouldn't be told that if believers never sin. And then second, he says, if anyone sins. Do you see that? In chapter 2, if anyone sins. So the possibility for a believer sinning is real. And it provokes the need for John to write about the solution to the believer's sin next. We wouldn't really need this text to prove to you and me that we sin. Don't you agree? We know that. We already know we sin. I'll give you another verse if you don't know that you're sin. How about this one? Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Has there been any time in your conscience where you've known the right thing to do and then didn't do it? If, if in your conscience you knew this would be the right thing to help that person and you didn't help him, then you already know your conscience already bears witness against you before God that you've sinned. You don't even need the Bible. That's how God, when people say, how's God going to judge people that never read the Bible? Because he can read their conscience. And their conscience, even though it's warped at times, they still have a sense of right and wrong and they violated their own sense of right and wrong. You know? 
They're part of a gang and they murdered three people. They're only supposed to murder two. And now their conscience bothers them. Silly to you, but if however warped the conscience is, they violate their own conscience. Any tribe in the world has violated their conscience. Every single person has violated their conscience. They know and are aware that they're a sinner. You should use that in evangelism too. They know it. Press it on them. They know they're sinners. All believers sin. Pastors sin. Moms and dads sin. Did you cover their ears? Moms and dads sin. Evangelists sin. Aunts and uncles sin. Those who walk in the Spirit today, praising the Lord, this beautiful music, sin tomorrow. Believers sin. B is for what? Believers sin. In what ways do believers still sin? Well, they sin with their mouths, cutting remarks, complaining, speaking judgmental things before listening to all the facts, getting all the facts. Believers sin by wrong priorities. They pursue advancement in the world and give a token amount of time and energy to the Lord their God. They sin by neglecting their family or their church family. They hold back offerings so that they can keep the lifestyle they want to. They make excuses why they can't attend rather than showing dedication. They don't volunteer to use their time, wait for someone else to be inconvenienced. They sin by harboring resentment in their heart against people that mistreat them. That's one of the hardest ones to deal with, when people mistreat you, to harbor resentment in your heart. We sin by praying lightly. We sin by making promises and then making excuses that we couldn't keep our promises. In some cases, we sin in much, much worse ways. And yes, you can be a believer and commit a terrible sin. But let's think about this a little more deeply. Here's an important question. If God has made it so clear why we should not sin, then why do we still sin? Remember, as believers, we're not now slaves to sin. We're told in Romans 6, 17, and 18, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, notice the tense, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You have a new master, righteousness. Sin has no true hold on any true believer. We are not deceived because we know the truth. And the power, listen, the power of sin is in the deception. It's in the deception. When you sin, whether you admit it or not, there's something you're temporarily believing that's not true. You're deceived. So why do we still sin? We sin because though we know the truth, we're careless with that truth. We let our guards down. We underestimate the spiritual warfare that we're in. We think just coming and sort of listening to a sermon like this without applying our mind after the sermon that everything will go well. I got a little bit of juiced up here in religion. I'm going to walk out the door and I'm going to be fine. No, you have to meditate on the truths. Your your mind goes with you, and if your mind doesn't circulate those truths inside, if they don't become your thoughts, then they'll they'll just go away. And this preacher's going to be very sad. But you're going to be sad because you didn't grab a hold of a thought that was helpful to you, meditate on it. Or in the morning when you have a devotion, you didn't meditate on it. So you were careless and you just let, let it go. You had the truth, but you didn't want to think on it. It took too much, too much thought, too much exercise. So you let it go. And so lo and behold, Monday, Tuesday, there you are sinning. It's not, it's not difficult to figure out, right? We sin because we're careless. We sin because we're prayerless. Prayerless. You know, I say, Lord, I, I ask you to bless my day, and I got a lot of things to do today, and our prayer sounds so casual like that. There's no intensity about our prayer, what we're going to face, and what we need to remember when we're in this situation. We're not intense about our time with God. We sin because we put our eyes on ourselves. We become selfish, and I need this, and I need to worry about that, and this has to be fixed, and I don't have enough time for that. Oh, and I have to face so-and-so, and I have to deal with this person, and it's all about you, and your eyes are completely on you, and your lack of resources, and your inability, and how unfair life is because your life is so... You're not, you're not focusing on Christ and His will, and so you sin because your eyes are on yourself. We sin because we still battle pride, just because we became Christians, and it takes humility to become a Christian, but there's still steps of humility we need to go down, so Christians have to be exhorted, be humble, and so God even lets us sometimes circle around and around in the same sin 
So that the main thing he's trying to get from us is our independence from him. He's trying to get that away. He's trying to remove the independence from our life so we'll be more humble, rely on him more, and then we'll realize that that sin that we struggle with so much really is mostly struggling with our own self-concern and our pride. So he even uses sin to humble us to stop us from sinning. We want to get God to help us with our agenda and not be willing to fit His agenda. We sin because, well, the real answer to this question is rather startling. Believers sin for no good reason at all. There really isn't a good reason why we sin. There's never any good reason or valid reason for a believer to sin. Why? Because we know what the truth is. We know what the truth is. There's there's absolutely nothing sensible about a believer committing an act of sin. It's based on deception, but we're not deceived. It produces destruction, but we've already been warned about that. It ensnares us in bad habits, but we know what those bad habits do. We've already tasted the goodness of eternal life, so why do we sin? Sin, in other words, is nonsense to a believer. It is the fruit of deception. Sin's root is deception. Satan keeps us from applying Scripture so that our thoughts go astray. He convinces us we need some sin to keep us happy or to deal with a tough issue. I just, I need to sin here because I'm dealing with, I had a really hard week, and I just, I just, I need to go out and go sin. And you already know that's not true. By the way, if you counsel people that way, you're not giving them Christian counsel. We must heed God's warning. God's our loving Heavenly Father. Father knows best. The best way to avoid sin then is to pay close attention to the truth, hold on to that truth as a treasure. So Christians do sin. They sin because they can be tricked, because they lose their focus on meditating on God's Word. What happens when a Christian sins? Do we become non-Christians when we sin? Do we lose our salvation when we sin? Are we cut off from God and fellowship with God when we sin? Are we assigned to purgatory when we sin? No, 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 and no. Definitely not no on that last one. No on that last one. God has a remedy for sin, and that's the letter C. And you can probably already tell what C stands for. Christ. Christ forgives sin. You could even say Christ deals with sin. That's letter C. A, avoid sin. B, believer's sin. C, Christ forgives sin. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1, the latter part of it. Our text presents two beautiful ways in which Christ has taken care of the believer's sin. This is about the believer's sin here. Two beautiful aspects of the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of the believer. Taken together, they provide us the complete answer to our sin problem. First John writes, if any believer sins, we have Jesus, the righteous one, as our advocate before the throne of God. Sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, is a completely righteous lawyer and advocate for you and me as believers. An advocate, of course, is a person who's called alongside to help someone else when they are in trouble. The Greek term here, parakletos, literally means one called alongside to help. Jesus, in other words, sits up there as our defense attorney. Your sins and my sins, though many, are taken care of. Jesus is our perfect and righteous defense lawyer. He testifies in the divine court on our behalf. The noted New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce comments on this. Instead of making false claims about sinlessness, a Christian should be grateful to know that if he does commit sin, his case is not hopeless. In the presence of God, he has an advocate, a powerful counsel for the defense. This advocate does not need to resort to questionable devices to secure acquittal for his clients. He is a righteous advocate. I love that quote. He's up there saying the kind of things that the judge wants to hear. He's a righteous advocate. See, our sin presents us with a great problem before God Almighty. How can we who have chosen to commit a sinful act have fellowship with the one who's already been described as pure light? And the answer is we cannot on our own, can we? 
And there's no other religion that has a solution to this dilemma. No other religion that has a solution to this. All other religions simply reduce God's perfections and His holiness and His justice. And they say, ah, you know, God is, God's not really concerned with all of that sin. It's, he's going to just forget about it. He's going to shrug his shoulders. It's not a big deal with God. A few sins, that, that's not bad enough to keep us away from God. You know, hell's only for the ones that commit really bad sins. Or, you know, we committed a few sins, but we can work it off. We can go to church. We can pay some money. We can help an old lady. We can do something. All of that, all of that is false teaching. None of that recognizes what Habakkuk the prophet said about God. Thine eyes are too pure to approve evil, and thou canst not look on wickedness with favor. Satan knows better. He knows He knows better than all the false religions he started. He remembers that it took only one sin for him to be cast out of heaven. He knew when he tempted Eve and Adam that it would take only one sin to bring death and destruction to the entire human race. He jumped at that opportunity. And when we sin, he jumps at the opportunity to accuse us. That's why he's called the accuser of the brethren. We're the brethren. He entices us into sin, says it's going to be good. Then when we do it, he turns to God and said, look what this guy did. Look at his sin. He's not worthy of you. He's one of mine. He even tried to, remember, take Moses' body off of the mountain. That was his body because Moses sinned. He wanted to claim it. He's very jealous. He's a liar. Bring someone into sin. Look how wonderful it's going to be. Come on and try it. And then he turns right around and he rams a sword in your back. He is the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12, 9, and 10. So we really do need a defense attorney. You know, are you a sinner? You need to go out and get a good lawyer. <laughs> oh, wait. No, you already have one. And he's already paid for it with his own blood. We don't realize how good we have it as believers. And listen, our fellowship with God is never broken. The joy of our relationship with God can be broken. The peace of our relationship, the enjoyment of that relationship with God can be broken by sin. But we are never taken away from fellowship with God because that fellowship involves the possession of eternal life. We never lose that. That's why we need to keep confessing our sin. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Chapter 1, verse 9, right? By the way, we confess our sins to who? Not a priest, not a pastor, but to who? To God. You confess it to God. God, I'm a sinner, and he forgives, right? Now, John could hardly finish writing about Jesus being our advocate without immediately explaining how Jesus' advocacy can work. How is it that he gets to do this? How is it that he gets to be at the right hand of the Father and the Father listens to him? And there it is. In verse 2, and he himself, Jesus himself, is the propitiation for our sins, believer's sins. I really think he's talking about the Jewish nation here in particular. There's the other solution for the believer's sin. Jesus himself can stand before God, a holy God, as our advocate, sinful people. Why? Because he himself, notice the emphasis in the verse, he himself propitiated our sins. What does that mean? Well, that term propitiation is not used that much anymore. The term when applied to God means to win over God's favor by satisfying God's holy wrath against our sins. In other words, Jesus has satisfied, you might even think of it this way, Jesus has extinguished the fires of God's burning fury against the believer's sin. Think of a very scary fire breaking out in your home, maybe in the kitchen, maybe it's an oil fire. What do you do? You go quickly for the extinguisher. You do have one, don't you? Some of you will be checking when we get home. <laughs> and you go and you douse it all over that beautiful steak that you cooked, the steak's history. You're just trying to save the house at this point in time, okay? And it extinguishes all the flames are all gone. That's what Christ's death did to God's burning, rightful, holy anger against you for the sins you committed. Christ's death put out God's fire of indignation. Our society goes around pretending that God does not actually punish sin, doesn't it? 
But the Bible is quite clear. I don't know how anyone could read the Bible and not know that God has wrath. It does burn against sin. How about Romans 1.18? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. How about John 3.36? He who believes in the Son of God has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This wrath hovers over the sinner like a black cloud, awaiting the day of judgment before it falls on them in full fury, no escape. Those who call themselves liberal Christians have a problem with the idea of a wrathful God. Many of them wrongly believe that the God of the Old Testament was more vengeful than the God of the New Testament. But it is the New Testament, not the Old Testament, that speaks of the fires of hell more than the Old Testament. And the one who spoke of the fires of hell most in the New Testament was Jesus himself, who came to save us from it. New Testament also teaches that God so loved the world that He gave His Son so we would not perish. Obviously, there's perishing. So God in love took the initiative to propitiate our sins, to satisfy them, to put out the wrath of God. Later in the same letter, 1 John 4.10, it says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Well, how did he show the love? What did he do? And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not for his sins, for our sins. So listen, it was the love of God and the holiness of God that required Jesus be put on that cross and die for us. There it was our bleeding and dying Savior propitiated the sins of all believers for all time. There he extinguished the flames of God's holy judgment against any of us. There on the cross he obeyed his heavenly Father to the very end, proving himself worthy, the righteous advocate on our stead, in our stead. This propitiation is offered to the Gentile world as well as the Jews. Notice it says, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. You do a study on John's writings on the term world and how he uses it particularly in the Gospel of John, which is the backdrop to this letter and was written before this letter and helps us to interpret many of the terms that are in this letter. You'll see that what he was saying is it was not just the Jews that had their king and die for them, but the whole world has a Savior that's been given for them. That doesn't mean that every man, woman, and child out there is going to get saved or that all of their sins were already paid for on the cross. It means that the death of Christ is available to all of the nations, to any who will believe. Those who will not believe will never benefit from that propitiation. There's no benefit for the blood of Christ for an unbeliever who looks at the cross of Christ and turns away and says, I'm going to live my life my own way. No benefit for them at all. But anyone from among the nations... Anywhere where it went out, Europe to the north and Africa to the southwest or over into Asia or eventually into the Americas and Australia and even Antarctica or in the oceans, wherever it is, anyone who hears Christ has come in to save the world. He's come to save all people. That one Jew on one cross, his blood was so precious it could pay the price for eternity for anybody who believes. That's the power of the cross. There is Therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're outside of Christ Jesus, there's the condemnation for every sin you've done. But inside, no condemnation, no guilt, no judgment. You say, that's just too good to believe. You better believe it. That's your only hope. You will forever be able to stand in the presence of God, blameless, with great joy, as Jude 24 puts it, Why? Because Christ propitiated your sins and he sits at the right hand as your advocate. This gives us a whole attitude towards our sin. If God is so gracious to forgive all the the guilt of sin, that he will work with us if we stay with him and we practice obedience with him, even those tough, stubborn sins, you keep walking with the Lord, It's not the perfection of your life that proves that you're saved. It's the direction of your life. You keep walking with the Lord. Some sins you'll shed quick. You'll say that three times. Some sins you'll shed quickly. Other sins will take longer. But you keep walking with Christ, and he'll humble your heart. He'll deepen your faith, and you'll learn over time, I don't like that sin either. I thought I really needed to do that. And I was, I was letting myself be deceived when I knew the truth. There was no need for that. 
I'm a slave of righteousness. And you'll learn the power of the cross more and more as you walk with Jesus. Not as you walk with Jesus and you're disobedient. Start where you need to be obedient. Do the next thing you need to be obedient. You're not a slave of sin. You'll see that. You'll be reinforced with power. Remember what Paul said? If you walk by the Spirit, you'll not carry out what? The desires of the flesh. Why? Because it's a greater power than that sinful power that's in you. You say, I'm young. I don't believe that yet. I know, but keep, keep believing because you'll get there because Christ's grace is amazing. He not only wipes the slate clean, he begins reworking in you because he wants you to be an obedient child. He will let you be humbled some because you trust too much in yourself and you want things like instant pudding and you can't have sanctification like instant pudding. And why I brought up instant pudding, I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm thinking about it right now. But you can't have things fast. It comes slowly. It comes hard. It comes with struggle. Remember what it says in Hebrews 12. It says, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him had to endure what? The cross, right? Despising its shame, but now he sat down at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. So we need to lay aside every sin that so easily entangles us and run the race with what? Endurance. When we run with endurance, God will be there. Are there any of you that are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ? I guess I would ask, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for the wrath of God to fall on you? It'll be too late. Are you waiting for seeing him face to face so you have the proof, so you don't need to exercise faith? It'll be too late on that day. He demands you trust him without seeing him. He demands you come, and you come humbly. And you come today because you don't know you have tomorrow. You come now because the day of salvation, the Bible says, is today. And I pray you will. Father, thank you for this reminder to avoid sin. Thank you for this provision for believers who sin through Christ, who has propitiated sin and dealt with sin. And we're so grateful, Lord, that we are no longer slaves to sin. As we come to your table, which is the symbol of the forgiveness we have at the cross, pray we'd be grateful again and renew ourselves with that desire to start with the little areas of obedience and do what we know is right and, and trust to walk with you many, many, many steps and realize that it takes an entire life to be sanctified and even at the end of life, there's still more to grow in. None of us will ever reach perfection in this life. But we're so grateful you receive us with incredible mercy and when we yell at you and complain at you and and dislike some of the things you do in our life, still you are there patiently wooing us back for your love is eternal and amazing. We love you, Lord Jesus, because you first loved us. Amen.